Good evening, everyone. Uh, if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 9? It's page 1040 in the, in the Red Pew Bibles. We were here two weeks ago, and we were wrestling with this question, who is Jesus? And it's a question that's been asked a number of times. And so far, Peter's answer seems to have been the best yet. The Christ of God was his answer, or the anointed one, or simply, in a word, Messiah. And so the identity of Jesus is becoming clearer. But although Peter was right, and although his answer was good, he and the other disciples were then sworn to secrecy. Jesus strictly warns them, and if you look at verse 21, it's there. He strictly warns them not to tell anyone, but to keep his identity under wraps, which seems strange to us now, but it clearly made sense then, or at least it made sense to Jesus then. But Jesus then goes on, and we looked at this two weeks ago, he goes on to speak of Easter, which, as we said, must have kind of sent their heads spinning further because having been identified as Messiah, as the long-expected one, the one who had been anticipated for years, Jesus then goes on to speak about suffering and rejection and death and resurrection, which were not the characteristics of Messiahship that they or anyone else had in mind. And while their heads spin even quicker, Jesus introduces even more intrigue by laying down and explaining the radical demands of discipleship. He says, listen, see if anybody wants to come after me. If you want to follow me, if you want to be my disciple, then you're going to have to embrace this way of life or rather this way of death. And so Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, They must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. And so that's where where we left it a fortnight ago. But we pick up the story eight days later, in verse 28, where the identity of Jesus becomes a little clearer, or again, or not as the case may be. So let's read the text. Now, all three... Synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this incident. But for the most part, we're going to stick with Luke's recollection and Luke's version. We're not going to stand, which is what we usually do for the public reading of God's word. uh, Because what I want to do is I want to read it slowly and I want to make various comments as we go along. So, if you have a Bible, look look at verse 28. About eight days after this, eight days after Peter's confession... Jesus said this, he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, I want to stop there, because here it is again. Twice, two references to prayer and the reality of prayer in the life of Jesus. Now, two weeks ago, I kind of labored this point based on verse 18, that one of the striking features of Jesus' life was his commitment to personal and private prayer. 
And Luke certainly emphasizes this right throughout his gospel. In fact, seven times in his gospel, Luke draws attention to Jesus at prayer. And here again, before another significant and watershed and moment in his life, Luke tells us that Jesus has gone to pray. That Jesus is praying. Prayer was a holy habit. In the life of Jesus. Creating space, creating time to pray were part of his rhythm of life. Despite the fact that he was the Christ. The anointed one. That he was Messiah. Jesus, the very son of God, recognized the importance of prayer. And if we are going to be authentic followers and disciples of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. Then we must not miss this example. We must not miss this model. That prayer for us needs to be a holy habit. Part of our rhythm of life. As it was part of Jesus's. Plus, if we rush past the specific detail, which by the way is unique to Luke. If you read Matthew and Mark's account of this, they don't mention the fact that Jesus was at prayer. But if you rush past verse 28 you might miss the fact that what happens next, the dramatic events that are about to take place, actually take place within the context of prayer. And I don't want to make too much of that, but it is interesting how at certain points and moments in the New Testament, prayer involved or it included a dramatic encounter of God's presence. Not every time, but definitely at times. It happened here in Luke 9, but it wasn't just limited to the experience of Jesus. In Acts, you discover the early church that similar things happen within the context of prayer. That it's as the early church prayed, God dramatically intervened in people's lives. So for example, where they prayed together in a particular place, we read that the place shook, tangibly shook, as they were praying. Or Paul and Silas were freed from prison when? Whilst they were praying. And there are a number of other comparable examples. And now I'm not for one minute suggesting that we should therefore expect to have experiences like that every time we pray. Or we should expect the kind of experience that Jesus is about to have, given the fact that he has been at prayer here in Luke 9. But at the same time, those sort of scenes, those sort of situations should challenge us, maybe, maybe, to seek something higher in prayer than simply speaking mere words in the hope that God might possibly somehow listen to us. Prayer maybe should include seeking the powerful presence of God as we communicate with him. Let's move on. Verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Now in most Bibles, and Trevor's already mentioned this, but in most Bibles, this little section is headed the transfiguration. Which means, according to a dictionary definition, a complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. A complete change of form or appearance into a more beautiful or spiritual state. In certain dictionaries, if you look up transfiguration, the definition it will give you is Christ's appearance in radiant glory to three of his disciples. 
Now, what exactly happened here on this mountain? And why it happened is not easy to describe or to get your head round. And at one level, it doesn't need to be. But what we can be sure about is that the dazzling identity of Jesus is becoming clearer and clearer to his disciples. As he is transfigured, the disciples see his divine glory, according to verse 32. In other words, their eyes are being increasingly opened as to who this is. Do you remember the disciples not that long ago said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Well, now they've caught a glimpse of glory. The identity is coming into sharper focus. And then what happens next surely only adds to their understanding. Despite how otherworldly and supernatural the subsequent events turn out to be, look at verse 30. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. Things are becoming increasingly mind-altering and bizarre. Two long-time dead men. Although one of them didn't actually die in the conventional sense, Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind, but either way, this was out of the ordinary. One, a lawgiver, or to be more accurate, a law relayer. The other, a prophet. Two men that are commonly interpreted as embodying the law and the prophets, which in itself is no doubt a significant point. Because as Jesus himself would clearly say after his resurrection, Moses and the prophets all pointed towards him. Now if you read Matthew and Mark's version of these events, they don't tell us anything about the conversation that took place between Jesus and these long time dead men. But Luke does. He's the only one who does. And what Luke tells us that these three say is significant. It's insightful. Verse 31. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Or to be more accurate, and certain translations do capture this. If you have a New Living translation, this is how it reads there. And they were speaking about, here's the topic of conversation. They were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Now, Luke uses this word exodus here in several senses. Yes, he uses it to talk about the fact that Jesus is going to depart. That Jesus is going to be soon leaving. But also he speaks of it in terms of what that word conjures up in many people's minds. It's an Old Testament word. It's actually an Old Testament event. And the connection with Moses here is more than coincidental to say the least. And so the reason Luke has chosen this word is that in his death, in the death of Jesus, which is going to take place in Jerusalem not that long from here, Jesus is going to somehow enact an event just like the great exodus of Egypt. Only more so. 
Because in that first exodus, Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and home towards the promised land. In the new exodus, which now these guys are referring to here with Jesus, in the new exodus, they're saying Jesus is going to lead all God's people out of slavery. But to what? From what? From sin and death and home to their promised inheritance. That's what Jesus was, had come to do. And slowly but surely the pieces of the jigsaw regarding Jesus' identity are beginning to fall into place. The thing is, the disciples here don't actually get this bit. In fact, they totally miss it. They miss the entire conversation and we'll discover why in a moment. But as we now read this chapter in the Jesus story, as we now read this chapter in our story, we discover more about who Jesus was and what he accomplished for us on that first Easter weekend outside of hell in Jerusalem. Because of Jesus, because of his life, death and resurrection, he has led us to true freedom and liberation. No longer are we slaves to sin. And in a few moments around this table, we will take time to thank God for that reality, to thank God for the new exodus that Jesus led. These three talk about that. The disciples miss it. And here's why. Look at verse 32. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. They had a habit of doing that. Always makes me feel better. It seems that whenever Jesus was praying earlier, they had dozed off. They had missed the dramatic events to date. But as they woke up, they were in for major shock and surprise. Back to verse 32. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory. Ready he referred to that. Plus they saw two men standing with him. Now how they began to process what was going on here is anybody's guess. Anybody's guess. But as Moses and Elijah start to leave, Peter, in typical Peter fashion, blurts out, and I'm only quoting verse 33 here in the NIV anyway, he blurts out that it's great to be here. And why don't we make three shelters, three tents, three tabernacles as memorials, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? Incidentally, if you visit the Holy Land today, built on a mountain which is where these events are thought to have taken place, Mount Tabor, is the church of the transfiguration. So somebody clearly thought Peter was onto something when he said it. But back to Luke 9, because nobody here picks up on Luke's idea, or Peter's idea, sorry. And the reason given is brilliant. It's so ordinary, it's so down to earth, it's almost disturbing. Look at verse 33. Peter, and then get this bit, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make these three shelters. You see, Peter had no idea what he was talking about or saying. Did you ever do that? But let's not be too hard on him. Because if any of us had woken up and seen what Peter had seen, who knows what we might have said. And then regret it. Now it's at this point. A cloud descends. And things get even more unsettling, more terrifying. Look at verse 34. 
But even as he, that is Peter, was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. Clouds in scripture and specifically in the Old Testament are often associated with the presence of God. It was the pillar of cloud during the day which guided the children of Israel. What was that all about? It was a symbol and constant reminder that God was with them. This morning, we referred to that cloud that descended on Sinai and indicated a unique divine appearance. Or in Exodus 40, as the tabernacle is completed, we read that a cloud covered it and the glory of God filled it. And given here that the Father's voice speaks from this specific cloud in Luke 9, it's pretty safe to assume that what this cloud represents is that God is now here on this mountain with these six. Before we kind of race past this, and maybe this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's, it's worth taking a moment to reflect on what God's presence manifest as a cloud tells us. What, what does that say to us about God? Clouds don't tend to bring clarity. If anything, they obscure, they hide, they conceal. And in a sense, that reminds us or it speaks to us, and many recognize this, it speaks to us of the mystery of God. God is mysterious. We live in a world that increasingly struggles with mystery. Generally, people want answers. People want explanations. They want information. They want clarification. And they want it when? They want it now. So, for example, we have, or many of us have, Google at our fingertips. So that at any point in time, we can discover everything about anything. If you're unsure about something, or if you don't understand something, then what do we all do? We Google it. It's all out there now. Even our very lives. I mean, if you want to find out what your friends are at, just log on to Facebook. Now, I know those are maybe extreme examples in a sense, but as we hunger, we as a humanity have always done this, but we hunger and we thirst for more knowledge, for more information. We want more answers. We want instant answers. We want fast knowledge. And what happens is that the sense of intrigue and mystery disappears or at least diminishes. And it impacts life at lots of levels. But I was kind of reading this week about how it can also impact our Christian lives. So, for example, we often want to try to explain everything about God. We've got to, we've got to find, somehow find explanations for everything regarding God. We want interpretation, we want commentary on everything we read in scripture. We seek solutions to every dilemma, every life event, every text that we don't understand. And we'd like to know it all now rather than wait for answers. And although it's good to seek more knowledge about God and the things of God, let's also remember that God isn't composed of a series of facts that are easily digestible and readily available or downloadable. With God, there is Mystery, God's presence 
is enveloped in mystery. In fact, as someone has said, coming into God's presence isn't like downloading a set of search results. Instead, it's like entering a thick cloud where everything is obscured, distorted, disorientated. Mystery. But there, in the midst of the cloud, is the presence of God who has come to be with. Peter, James, and John experienced some level of change on that mountain forever, not because they learned or discovered lots more information or facts about God. In reality, those three disciples probably descended that mountain with more questions than answers. But on that mountain, they encountered the living God, and that is what impacted them. That is what alters the course of life. Being in God's mysterious presence and being gripped by tangible fear and a holy awe and reverence. We don't have to explain, solve, or unravel everything about God. Stephen Boyer and Christopher Hall have written in their book, The Mystery of God. God is not a puzzle. And to relate rightly to him is not to analyze, classify, or master, but to worship. God is not a puzzle to be solved, but a mystery to be worshipped. Let's embrace mystery and not always look for answers or Google it. Back to the story, because as we've said, it's from this cloud then that descends and envelops this place and that somehow envelops these six. It's from this cloud that a voice is heard. Let's read verse 35. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And if we go back to this question that we've heard asked or answered and answered during the past three times we've looked during this series, who is Jesus? Well, now we come to the definitive answer. Now we come to the arresting revelation of Jesus' identity direct from the lips and the voice of none other than God the Father. The disciples have wrestled with the question. Herod has wrestled with the question. Peter has come up with a great answer. Here is the definitive answer. This is my son, my chosen one. There's an echo here of the divine words that were spoken at Jesus' baptism. In Luke 3, we hear that whenever Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That was addressed directly to Jesus. Now in Luke 9, the message is for a wider audience. It's not you are my son, it's this is my son. And not only is he loved, but he's chosen. And so no more speculation is required. No more wondering is necessary. The identity of Jesus is now clarified. It's now confirmed on this mountain. And whatever else the transfiguration is about and involved, whatever else, this was surely one of the core aspects and reasons. It was to add more layers onto the identity of Jesus. He is my, He is God's son. Chosen. 
But there is a further dimension here. Because knowing who Jesus is is not quite enough. The voice from the cloud tells us what we must do in response to that knowledge. Listen to him. Listen to him. It's not enough to know who Jesus is. You've got to listen to what he says. Someone has written Jesus' sonship is not a matter of abstract theology, but requires the obedient response of the disciples to Jesus' message. Take it on board. Pay attention to what comes out of his mouth. And that in itself is a key part of what the series is all about. If you've been kind of journeying with us through Luke's gospel, what we've said is what we're doing with more than a comma is we're re-listening to the words of Jesus, the message of Jesus. Why? Because they matter. What Jesus said, what he taught, really does matter. And it remains the critical issue for every single human being to not only answer this question, who is Jesus, but then to hear what he has to say. But back on this mountain, the voice stops speaking. The cloud presumably lifts. Moses and Elijah disappear. And Jesus is by himself, along with his disciples. And although you would have thought that at this point the disciples would have raced down the mountain to declare from the rooftops what they've just witnessed, that's not what happens. Let's read verse 36. When the voice finished, Jesus was there alone. They didn't tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And so mum's the word again. Life goes on. But things are becoming a little clearer. At least, I think they are. It's a fascinating nine verses. We've only scratched the surface. But amongst other things, I hope our journey through those nine verses has encouraged you to do five things. Consider... Your prayer life. Is it a holy habit? Is praying part of the rhythm of your life? Consider your willingness or your response to the great exodus. And Trevor's about to lead us. In one way we respond. To that great exodus that Jesus led. Via his death on the cross. Consider your willingness to embrace. Not only embrace but celebrate mystery. We cannot explain everything about God. We don't have to. Consider your answer to the question, who is Jesus? And finally, consider your commitment to listen to him. Because listening to Jesus is imperative. Thanks, Trevor.